I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hi everyone, welcome. It's lovely to see you all here and it's fantastic to have Rachel over again. Um, as you've heard, when flamethrowers sort of started appearing in, in the UK last year, reviewers, including myself, sort of realised we were dealing with something really special. It was such an extraordinary mix of different things. It uh, starts with the, the, the protagonist, uh, Reno, a young woman driving across the Salt Lakes on a motorbike until she almost kills herself and then it leaps from that to First World War Italian motorcycle battalion um, and then proto-anarchist, proto-futurist driving around uh, Italy on motorbikes and then you've got the 1970s New York art scene. It's incredible, all these different things mixed together and it was incredibly successful. It's been really vindicated by the fact that it was long-listed for the Baileys um, Prize for Fiction this year and then was recently shortlisted for the inaugural Folio Prize for Fiction as well. As a result, we're now very lucky that actually... We're now having published Rachel's first novel, Telex from Cuba, which also brings together, as we're going to be talking about, as we're going to hear, a really remarkable range of things as well. I think this is something I'd really like to talk about, is just that there are so many different levels, so many different things, historical things. And uh, So Telex from Cuba is set in the years leading up to the overthrow of Batista in Cuba. Um, it's seen largely, but not exclusively, from the perspective of American families living there and running the, for example, the sugar plantations for the United Fruit Company, um, but also the nickel mines. Um, but then there are, there are prostitutes acting as spies for Batista and for the rebels. There are the rebels in the mountains. There's the son of an American family going and joining the rebels. There's a huge amount there. Um, and in fact, there's also a cameo from Ernest Hemingway, and not least Fidel Castro later on, um, in perhaps his only sex scene in modern fiction. Um, Rachel's going to read a section which features um, Ernest Hemingway. And I should say, before we carry on, that what's so nice about now having Telex from Cuba published in the UK is that it's Rachel's first book, her first of two. Both those books have been finalists for the National Book Award in America, which makes Rachel the only author ever to have her first and her second book nominated for the National Book Award. So your, your hit rate is pretty good. Um, so we're gonna, Rachel's going to read, and then we're going to talk for a while. Thanks, Robert. Um, the last time I came and did an event at the store was when the flamethrowers first came out in hardback. And I think we had like an electricity power outage, and I suggested when it happened that we all trash the store. But it was a joke, of course, so thanks for inviting me back. <laughs> yeah, I'll read a short scene from this book. There's so many different narrators in this novel that it's really hard to choose one scene that does everything that the book does. I mean, it's hard with any book to do that, but in this case, each narrator is working in a completely different, sort of existing in a different realm of the same time and place. 
all you need to know is this is quite a young character. Is a boy. His name is Casey, and his father is the head of the United Fruit Company, whose sugar operations are in far northeastern Cuba. Um, we'll talk more about that later. But he's in Havana with his family for Christmas, and he's 13 years old. Mother, Daddy, and I went to see Javier Cugat at the Cabaret Tokyo that Christmas. Their main theater was outside, but air-conditioned. I don't know how they did that. We sat under royal palms, colored searchlights crisscrossing red and green, parrots flying over us, cutting through the beams of colored light. A flock of them lived in the palm trees at the Tokyo. We'd seen Javier Cugat perform many times. He'd recorded the Chiquita banana jingle for the company's radio and television spots, and he was friendly with Daddy. Javier Cugat kept a little chihuahua in his coat pocket. The band started, and finally he walked out, everybody clapping, and the dog jumped from his pocket and trotted around the stage. When I was little, I got up from our table and went and sat on the edge of the stage and played with Javier Cugat's little dog while he was performing. No one minded or said a word about it. That Christmas, Mother and Daddy ribbed me about getting up on stage to play with the dog, but I'd outgrown that. Daddy took us to the Floridita for dinner after Javier Cugat's show. The dining room was full, and we didn't have a reservation, so they seated us at the bar. You might know that the Floridita was Hemingway's hangout. Sure enough, just after we ordered... His raw, pink face filled the mirror above the liquor bottles. Daddy said Hemingway was crude and obscene. He talked about him like they were mortal enemies, but Hemingway walked right by us, and I don't think he knew Daddy from Adam. I ordered lobster. The lobster they brought me was pregnant, and when I cut into it, an orange liquid oozed out, the eggs. I didn't think I could eat it, but Daddy said I should think of a pregnant lobster as a delicacy, that anything unseemly could be made tolerable if you told yourself it was a special thing, an exclusive thing. Like caviar, he said. I told him I hated caviar, and Daddy said it wasn't about taste. It was about having things that other people couldn't have, and there was a certain burden in that. Hemingway parked himself at the bar and began chatting with his neighbor on the next stool, a slick-looking fellow in an expensive suit and tinted glasses. Somebody put coins in the jukebox, and Augustine Lara started singing Mujer. That song was on our jukebox at the Pan American Club. It was a popular song, and apparently Hemingway knew the words. He asked the bartender for change and then punched in selections himself, still singing along with Mujer. He sat back down and La Pachanga came on. That was another popular song. Hemingway was doing the whistle parts along with the song. He turned to this slick-looking guy who was sitting at the bar minding his own business. You do the Pachanga? Hemingway asked. The guy nodded like he didn't really understand, then looked away. The Pachanga, Hemingway said, louder. 
like the song, or maybe cha-cha. If you know cha-cha, you can learn pachanga. I'm afraid I do neither. He had some kind of European accent. A rumba then? Hemingway was humming and snapping his fingers. The fellow shook his head. I sit at the bar. That's what I do. Don't get huffy. I asked if you do a pachanga. Who says men can't dance? I felt bad for the guy. It seemed like he wanted to be left alone. But those are always the ones who get the onslaught. Then again, if you really want to be left alone, you have a drink in your room by yourself. Look, uh, I'm not a friend of the family, shall we say, the man told Hemingway. I've got news for you. I go to Paris, I sleep at the Ritz, and everybody over there. You are French, aren't you? Every one of them is a friend of the family, even the women. So how about some cha-cha? Because the rumba, have you heard? They're talking about outlawing it. Is that so? But they shouldn't. Oh, no. It's a crime to outlaw the rumba. Hemingway wasn't exactly shouting, but his talking voice was louder than the music and the room murmur. I think everyone in the bar was listening the way I was. Even if it's so sexy, it forces people, Hemingway said, to do naughty things. That's the curse of the rumba, and I've seen it. Men hiking up women's skirts and humping them right on the dance floor. It's probably happening in some back alley right now. I mean this second, while I'm sitting here talking to you. Me? I've got a back problem. Still make love good, but not standing up. Do you know why they shouldn't outlaw the rumba? I couldn't say. Because people need diversions. Sex is a healthy diversion. A very effective diversion. I suppose I can agree with you there, the Frenchman said. Hemingway insisted they toast. To humping. They held up their drinks. It's a typical scenario, really. Drunk people carving out worlds as they get drunker. Making packs about what's important and what isn't. In a couple of lost and forgettable hours. But when you're 13, you don't realize it doesn't count that both those men could enter the bar the very next day and act as if they've never seen each other before, perhaps repeat the conversation word for word as if for the first time. I'll stop there. I think it's probably important to point out to anyone who hasn't read the book, which I think is probably the majority of you right now, um, that this is really just one of the splinters from which the book is, is formed. There are so many characters here. Casey is the only character who has his own first-person narration. Yeah. And I think this, the book is an incredible mosaic of everything that's going on in Cuba at this time. Casey is, in fact, only one of several American characters. There are other American children there, all these different families living, living in their enclaves, running big businesses all telling themselves that the rebels aren't really going to come down from the hills, everything's going to be fine, even up until the last moment. And what's fascinating as well is that you, you show us the perspective of um, the government fixers, for example, Batista's fixer, 
and then also the French arms trader who's arming the rebels. And so all these different angles are brought together. Um, so I think I wanted to start just by asking about the background to this, about how you came to this material. Because am I right in thinking that your, your mother, did she grow up in Cuba around this time? Yes, Is that she right? did, yeah. And her father was working in the nickel mine. Uh, yeah, he well, he was a manager running the nickel mine. Yeah. yeah, as is one of the characters in this book, right. for example. Uh, yeah, but none of the characters are based on my family. Um, I somehow, you know, this was my first novel, and it took me a long time to write it—six years, or more than that, actually. Um, and it was a steep learning curve to figure out what to do with this. What I felt was incredibly rich material, but. Um, Ultimately, none of the incredibly strange real stories and details that I had really found a place in the book. I needed to really um, bring forth details as I learned about them only as they were called for in the plot of the book, which is a wholly imagined world. But I never would have encountered that world or thought to write a novel about it until I went to Cuba uh, with my mother and two of her sisters in, I think, 1999. Um, and for them, it was the first time they'd gone back there since they lived in Cuba when they were kids. And my grandfather had worked at the the nickel mine there. Nickel used to be a really valuable uh, resource for war. It was very valuable war ammunition, no longer the case. But Cuba had some of the most valuable um, nickel mines in the world. And so the nickel mine there had been a kind of exploitable resource for the American government off and on over the entire 20th century. I mean, up until 1959 when they had the revolution and nationalized the mine. But they'd opened it, um, I guess, during World War II. And then after the war was done, they closed it down and just sent all the Cuban mine workers away. You know, that's it, you're out of a job. And then they opened it again during Korea. And that's when my grandfather moved over there and worked at the mine. And he was a manager. And my grandfather was incredibly proud of that because he didn't have a PhD. He wasn't really qualified to be a manager of a mine. But you find this kind of syndrome where um, people who are just getting by in the United States and other uh, you know, developed countries can go and live in the tropics and have servants and have a more important job than they might have at home because it's considered a sort of... Um, unattractive place to live and work by these more or less xenophobic Americans who moved there. And that was the situation of my uh, my mother's family. So I went to Cuba with her, and she had not been back there since she was a child. And we traveled to this remote town called Nicaro, uh, which figures prominently in my book. It's a real place. And before we went there, I looked it up in the travel book that I bought for Cuba's The Moon Handbook. And um I looked in the back, and Carl, it's listed. I looked it up, and there was one sentence, and it said, there is no reason to divert from the main highway and travel the 3.2 kilometers to see this uh, to see this wasted and forgotten place or something like that. Um, because, you know, it's, it's been Sovietized, and so there's just ugly block apartments there, and then they've polluted it. I mean, they're just like pipes bubbling up out of the ground, and the coral reefs are all dead. Um, but also, there's not, there, it's not a place for tourists. 
there would be no place for a tourist to stay and nothing for a tourist to buy. And it's a communist country, so it's illegal to stay in someone's home or to buy food on the side of the road unless those people have a license for it. And so there's just there would be no reason for any tourist to ever go there. So that immediately piqued my interest. And I thought, huh, okay. Uh, so we went to this town, and my mother and her sisters had this incredible reunion with all these Cubans they'd known as children who spoke English because they'd gone to an American school, and this was a quasi-colonial society. And um, they were, like, singing jingle bells, you know. Oh, I remember the Americans. We used to sing the song. But uh, a lot of them had stayed because their parents were for the revolution, and the Americans had all left, and none of them had ever returned not a single person. Uh, and they'd completely dominated the social structure of this town. And Raul and Fidel Castro were from 15 kilometers away up on the hill and talked about that nickel mine, you know, and having grown up outside the gates of it, witnessing a very exclusive American compound and Americans controlling both of Cuba's uh, valuable foreign resources, nickel and sugar, so, I mean, I could go on for too long from there, but that was the original idea to write the book was going there with them. And through my mother and her sisters and also my grandparents' archive, they were like the kind of people who saved. Well, this is the kind of people my grandparents were. After they died, I helped my mother and her sisters go through their house because I was a good daughter. And um, their house had file cabinets from floor to ceiling on four walls of a room and the file cabinets were filled with expired coupons. I don't know if you have coupons in England, but you know, like save 30 cents a pound on lemons like this week at the grocery store. So it was like, you know, neurotic, but uh, they had every single document from their life in Cuba. They still had the business card of the man who would come to tune their piano which he came almost weekly because it's so humid there that it's impossible to keep a piano in tune. So I had all this stuff, and, um, and being there was very, uh, it sparked a lot of ideas for me, and I decided to try to write a novel uh, about the Americans who lived there in that era and the way in which they influenced the turn of events that came to pass, resulting in the revolution. And did their, did their filing cabinets form the sort of the backbone of your research? I'm just wondering, because as in flamethrowers as well, there's such a depth of detail that I kind of imagine you could, have, you could have spent two or three years just researching these things. How much of it was from this treasure trove which was waiting for a descendant to suddenly become a novelist to stumble upon? Well, and how much was it going to libraries? They, I mean, the, the treasure trove was, it was a kind of albatross around my neck in a way, but it was also, you know, it was really my way in. I mean, so many things in life are like that. Um, you know, a help and a hindrance. It was a completely different process than my most recent novel, Flamethrowers, uh, which I didn't really research. Uh, it was, in a way, that book was like a gift to myself as a writer because I just got to activate bodies of knowledge that I'd picked up just through pure, natural, uh, my personal life and through my natural intellectual curiosity and things I've read and have wanted to write about. And somehow the book invited a place for those things. But Telex from Cuba was something else totally. It was like me applying myself to a pretty major set of materials because I wanted to think about national liberation movements in the 20th century and Cuba as this, it, it's like this erased place. You know, the revolution tried to erase 
this colonial structure that the Americans set in place there after the Spanish-American War. So starting in like 1898, the United Fruit Company was there and they owned everything very quickly. They owned 98% of the arable land in eastern Cuba. They had their own postal service, their own electric company, um, all of their own utilities, their own stores, their own shipping companies. They had their own roads. They really dominated that country. So I had to you know, learn and study all of that and then also figure out the history of you know, Cuban politics historically. It's like the most Baroque history. Actually, there's an incredible historian happens to be British, the historian of Cuba. His name's Hugh Thomas. I think he's like 100 years old now, but he wrote this really great book. Um, but to understand Cuban history, you also have to understand what happened in Haiti, with the revolution there, because a lot of the French coffee planters in Haiti moved to eastern Cuba and set up coffee plantations there. And these things sound a little recondite, but they shaped the way that the culture was there in the 1950s. So I had to learn it um, and internalize it and kind of synthesize it and then break free of it in order to write the book. And ultimately, the details from my grandparents' archive they, they were my way in because I saw in that there were clues in their archive. Like, for instance, that the United Fruit Company was really um, the imprimatur for how to be in the tropics uh, as a xenophobic and pretty racist white person. They knew how to subdue, quote-unquote, native people. They knew how to train your servants, all this kind of stuff that my grandmother would write about. It was sort of unbelievable. And then that clued me in to go and interview the children of the United Fruit Company people. Uh, you you know? them. Yeah, I went to Tampa and interviewed some people. I, I interviewed one guy whose father was the head of the United Fruit Company, and he was... Uh, Helpful. Um, I don't know if he was that happy with the book after I wrote it, but uh, you know he's a real believer in the goodness uh, of the company and of his family, and they were very close to Batista. And he had these giant ledger books that he showed me. Um, they were the ledger books that the overseers in the sugarcane cutting fields would use to pay the workers. A lot of times they didn't pay them any money because they would have already taken out all of what of what they would have earned in credit at the company store and so then they would just get a star in the ledger book and the cubans would joke that they were four star generals because in their check would just have four stars across it and no payment but so these ledger books in which they recorded uh, their wages this man whose father was the head of the United Fruit Company's mother had made a ledger book into a scrapbook of their time in Cuba. I mean, this thing must have weighed over 100 pounds, and he brought it out for me and showed it to me. And um, I interviewed lots and lots of people, and almost all of them died right after that because it was sort of the very end of when these people would have been alive. Like, I intersected with them, luckily, in a moment when I was sort of ready to write a book like that. But, yeah, so the research processes for the two books were very different because with the first I just immersed myself in these materials and I read and talked to people uh, and traveled to Cuba. I spent three months there for, for three or four years and that's not a way to write a book actually. Hang on, and this is just three or four <laughs> years of pure researching. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even have a job. I quit my job in New York and I was just, I wanted to write this book. Um, I mean, it worked ultimately, but it was, I, I don't know how else I could have done it because it's almost like the book is a set piece. It's me applying myself to this world in which I did not live 
uh, I didn't live in that time or that place. And so I had to conjure it in a way. Um, but in order to create fictional characters and put them in a place and move them around, I had to separate myself from it completely and then really just you know be a writer and become one. But my, the you know, tools and my materials were these new things that I'd internalized and synthesized. But the, so the process, I, I think I would, I don't know if I would do that again. It was very intense. Uh, so yeah, with the second book, it was m- more playful in a sense for me because I didn't have to learn a world first. But you're clearly a writer, as you're describing, who really responds to the idea of there being material out in the world, historical material, but then also you know, any kind of detailed material. I mean, there's a fascinating section in this book about how to throw a grenade properly, for example. I mean, that's the sort of... It's a useful tool to have. Really good thing to know. Don't ever throw a grenade upstairs. That's the first rule for those of you who don't know, (laughs) because it may come tumbling back down. I tell you, that piece of information lodged in me immediately. And the whole thing about letting it cook off for a little bit. But not more than two seconds, because otherwise it will blow up in your hand. <laughs> You've done your homework, yeah. <laughs> but I love the grenade bit. That's the, and um, but so I, so I was just wondering how much then the because of course I can you can tell reading it that there's a point where you've got to let go of everything you know because yeah. actually it's the characters who are living this thing and they are the thing that and if you've read the flamethrowers as well you'll be aware that it's it's very much about intense interior experience much more than it is about an author telling you about all the history that she knows. Um, but I wonder how much that material, because you're so fascinated by it, and you've got such a magpie's eye for different things. It can be rebels or grenades or uh, living a luxury life in, a, in Cuba. I wonder how much that material helps you then formulate your narratives. For example, after you've done your three or four years of um, research into Cuba, how much you think, oh, yeah, that side of things, that could be inhabited by this character. And then do you start apportioning things this way? No, it's less deliberate. Mm-hmm. I tried to do that at first, but um, it makes for a kind of inert brew, I think. Uh, at least it did for me. And then I just really focused on the characters and kind of just getting into that magical zone of writing and figuring out where there's energy. But once I was there, I had at the ready a working knowledge of what that place would have been like and um, I guess a taste for the odd detail. I mean, it was really... I was looking at the book again last night because you know I finished writing this book in 2006, actually, and it was published in the States in 2008. So it's been a while for me, and I was looking back through, and it was strange and interesting to see, and I thought of the book suddenly as um, the evidence of almost like a seance that I performed because it's about this dead, lost world. I'm not advocating for that world in any way, but um, in order to reconjure it, I had to like commune with the dead almost in some way and figure out which of the clues had energy and spoke of some kind of deeper truth. Like, I could give you an example there. Uh, There was a piece in the New Left Review, I think in 1961, by Robin Blackburn. Does he still write for the LRB once in a while? I don't know. In any case, you know, a lot of these people were writing about Cuba after the revolution. And he wrote a piece pretty much trying to argue that there had been no middle class uh, 
in Cuba before the revolution, meaning it was not a viable society as it was. Dictator or no dictator, there wasn't really a middle class. And he, as an example um, of the sort of excesses of the Spanish, who were the lineage of Galician aristocrats, he talked about their tombs at this famous cemetery uh, in Havana as being air-conditioned and having elevators in them. And I found that so fascinating, like thinking about that. Was it really like that? So I went to that cemetery in Havana, and I um, had a guide. They have guides there who will take you to all the famous graves. The grave of Eduardo Chibas, who killed himself on the radio very famously, uh, which was really the kind of the gunshot that got things off to their original start with the Cuban Revolution, although it happened in 1953, I think. See, my dates are sort of rusty from this book. So he showed me these graves of these Spanish aristocrats, and I said, I mean, the Cuban, but of the Spanish heritage, and I said, is there really an elevator that goes down to those tombs? And he said, well, they had to put the lift because the stairs uh, are tight spiral and none of the coffins would fit. Um, so, and then I said, well, what about the air conditioning? And he just looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, so, you know, there's some details like that, like I, we want to include them, but I, I would resist including them. But then there are others that just kind of burble up out of the unconscious after you've internalized them. I mean, that was the really, the fruit of the labor of the research was that I had these things at the ready uh, when I needed them. I was going to say, and as part of you, like, finally inhabiting the book psychologically and through individuals, which, um, which is how it reads, it's incredible how morally subtle I think the book is as well, from the point of view of both the Americans, and especially you have a lot of um, child characters who are perceiving their, their parents' rather more stringent, uh, racist, xenophobic views. But then on the side of the rebels as well, I think I sense you have a real... And this is something that comes into the flamethrowers as well. I sense you have a sort of a cautiousness and a, a suspiciousness of radical viewpoints. And of course... And in the f- Not really. No? Okay. The, but there's, a, there's a sort of... I, there's an interesting thing um, in Telex from Cuba about the drive that's there to, to make something like a revolution happen, but then what actually happens once people get into power. There's a little bit of that. Well, my book very pointedly ends on New Year's Day of 1959, pretty much in terms of you know the activities in Cuba. Then there's an epilogue where some people go back to Cuba in more recent times. Um, but prior to that, it ends on the day when the possibilities are open. I mean, to some degree, this is how revolutions go. There's a moment when everything is open and there is great possibility. And that's the moment that interests me. It's not a book, really, for me, that is about a distance from or a skepticism about the convulsions of governments and political change at all. I mean, I really think the Americans had it coming, frankly, in Cuba. Maybe for me, the moral subtlety, the children do help because they can see the contradictions of Mm -hmm. their parents in a way that being an adult is about, to some degree, um, repressing contradictions and reconciling them uh, in funny ways that we do constantly. But also there's the French character, his name's Christian de la Mazière, 
I plucked him from the real world. He's, I based him on a real guy. He was a Frenchman who joined the Charlemagne division of the Waffen-SS right before the Allies rolled into Paris. So it's really like just committing suicide, basically, to do that. And um, he fought against France in a German uniform. If anyone's ever seen the movie The Sorrow and the Pity, he figures very prominently in that film. Very dubious and charismatic character uh, who ended up working as a film producer in France and dating people like Juliet Greco and Dolly Da, the great pop singer Dolly Da. But earlier he had this ferocious past that he'd never talked about until he was in The Sorrow and the Pity, and then it all came out. Uh, and he wrote a memoir about fighting alongside the Nazis in the Charlemagne division. And um, I was fascinated by him. And he, for me, symbolized the figure of the adventurer, someone who has no ideological attachment to revolutionary change or to any kind of politics whatsoever. He's just in it for the convulsions of violent change. Um, and it's all about you know being young and youthfulness and signing up for... It's a relationship to death, really, in a way. But So I sent him to Cuba to train Cuban rebels. I thought that would be appropriate for him. And then a memoir came out by him. He wrote a first memoir called The Helmeted Dreamer. Those translated into English. I don't really read French, unfortunately. And then there was a second memoir called The Wounded Dreamer that he wrote much later in life. And my husband, uh, who is here tonight, read that for me as a favor and he said, oh, you'll love this. There's a whole chapter about May 68. And Lamaziere, who was very, very far to the right, wrote a chapter about uh, really celebrating May 1968 and talking about the beauty of Molotov cocktails sailing through the air and like young women in the streets of Paris near the Sabon with their hair flowing. And it's just all about the excitement of violence for someone like that. And so for me, in a way, he function to bring out a kind of nuance because he has so much distance and so much cynicism from the whole game. Uh, it's not my viewpoint, but it was very important to me to represent that viewpoint in the book. It's striking as well how that combination of factors and themes, which is entailed from Cuba, there's the, uh, the heated sort of machismo desire for revolution and convulsions, as you describe it. Um, and what was, it, what was the name of his memoir? The Helmeted Dreamer. There is almost imagery in flamethrowers, which is quite similar. That the sort of the futurists, who they're very interested in um, in metal and power and yeah. movement and change. Then, and then you've got sort of a corporate power as well. Of course, is very important. Tell it's for Cuba, and a lot of these things are mirrored in flamethrowers. I feel because, of course, there's the, there's a connection to war as well. There's the First World War there. And the character who we follow in the First World War there is uh, T.P. Valera. Right. And who then, out of the war, start, he goes to Brazil and starts getting into rubber tapping. Yeah. And he starts a tire company in Italy. And eventually that's going to become the motorcycle company that will build the motorcycle that the young American woman at the beginning of the novel... All true. So she's then experiencing power and speed and danger in the same way he was after the First World War. But so it's interesting that this, this idea of corporate power and also of, of dynasties, um, right. I think, if we can say that, lingers there in opposition and in parallel to a desire for radical change and for convulsions, as you call it. I just wanted to ask how much you see that nexus of things very clearly and think, uh, oh, yeah, I can put those together again, this kind of way. I sense it comes a little bit more unconsciously, but you clearly, it's something, 
it's also a very conscious preoccupation for you. Well, yeah, but in writing, uh, you're correct when you say it's more unconscious. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really even think about any connections between those two books. I thought with Flamethrowers, this is my time to do something completely different than the first book. Um, But, you know, come to find out, there are certain similarities between them, but some differences too, like the company and the Flamethrowers is totally fictional. Um, It's constructed in in a way to kind of draw a thread through 20th century industrial culture and then factory politics. But the United Fruit is this real thing. And it has something called that I think of as uh, institutional memory. And that haunted me when I was writing that book, the idea that the company as an entity could have a will that would outlive any one individual who had ever participated in developing the architecture of that company's their policies and their placement and what they own and et cetera, like United Fruit became United Brands, became Chiquita, and they apparently still have a lawsuit pending against the government of Cuba. And um, there's very little likelihood of them seeing any money for that lawsuit unless Cuba opens up. But there are plans in place for the moment that Cuba would open up, Chiquita Banana would go back there and actually try to seize the territory that they formerly owned. And so, you know, I don't confuse my fiction by bringing all this in, but it's good propulsion for me to have these kind of mysteries that keep me interested and fascinated. The idea that the company would want to go back, but all the people that formed the company are dead. But their their housing stock is still there in eastern Cuba. It's still painted United Fruit Yellow. None of that housing stock has ever been repainted since 1959. It's this like mustard yellow color and it's just peeling off. And I can share like a small fact with you that this is one of the things that made me want to write the novel when I was there with my mother and her sisters. They located a really amazing man um, named Cleveland Manning who is from Jamaica and had worked in my grandparents' house. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. House and my mother had basically been in love with him when she was a child, uh, which is sort of, I kind of used a little bit of that in the book. We found this man and um, it was a tearful reunion with my family. And then we said, you know, what do you want to do? We have this car. No one in Eastern Cuba has a car. He said, I want to go and see Fidel Castro's birthplace. It's only 15 kilometers away, but it's not easy to get to because there's no bus system in Eastern Cuba and literally no one has a car. We wanted to see it too. So we drove to the old hacienda of Angel Castro, who was Fidel's father. And a lot of the people that I interviewed remembered him. The much older people, when they were kids, would go hunting up there and the old man would invite them up on the porch for coffee. 
and the house had just recently been restored by the Cuban government. It was not yet open to the public, but they planned to make it a museum. Um, it's a pretty middle class. Fidel is from, you know, a relative privilege for that part of Cuba, Oriente province is poor province. Um, and they're a you know, light-skinned family. It's a black province historically. And then they had this big hacienda. It's up on stilts. The animals go into the house. And they had just repainted it. And everything was meticulous. And guess what color they painted it? United Fruit Yellow. And I'd, I had done all this research. And I know that United Fruit painted all their houses that color all over Latin America and the Caribbean. So... I asked, a guy showed us around, he was nice enough, even though we weren't supposed to be on the property. And I said, well, why did they paint it uh, this color? And he said, you know, I think, that, I think it's because uh, it repels mosquitoes. <laughs> and um, I had happened to have just read right before that that United Fruit cut their paint with a chemical called malathion. Uh, it's a poison that does repel mosquitoes. So it had come to seem as if the color repelled mosquitoes. Um, and so, I don't know, there's something about the United Fruit Company for me that is different than Valera because I made Valera, but United Fruit made itself. And my job was to try to unlock and understand some of its codes and mysteries, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I've been reading a book called uh, Sapiens, which I've just remembered is going to be published by Harful Secker as well. And there, it's, a, it's an Israeli historian. He, he talks about the development of human culture. And he uses an example of the Peugeot car company. And he says that this is simply a modern, like recent last 200 years version of human fiction, basically. It's on a level with myth. It's, it's fascinating that you... The un- Peugeot? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The idea that companies are, they're as made up as Gods, Everything is backwards on a Peugeot. My dad always got these crappy old used Peugeots, and then he'd have to get reverse threaded tools to fix them. I don't know if that has anything to do with his argument. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I was good. I think so, there's this unusual thing about both your novels: the fact that there's so much history happening around the characters. And I think that's unusual because I think at the moment, historical novels tend to be maybe, you know, more, for example, uh, Tudor trilogies about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, perhaps. And I think contemporary novels, and yours are set as sort of in in a recent past as well as in the present day, um, tend to shy away from having such a sort of bursting background of history to them. And I think you, you only have to listen to you and your sort of your, you, your fascination, your compulsion to sort of go into the details of what the United Fruit paint was cut with, for example. But I wonder how much of that comes just from your sort of acquisitiveness for facts and modern myths. You're clearly very interested in putting people in historical moments. Your novels breathe and live because of people, but those people yeah. are always inside quite critical moments of history. Yeah, well, I think, you know, with that first book, when it was about to come out, I started thinking about how to talk about a book that takes place in history, but that I don't really consider within, if there's a genre of the, you know, historical novel. Um, but I started thinking about these kind of, and I'm not super knowledgeable about Lukash, but I started thinking about, like, Lukash very famously wrote about the historical novel. You know, the good historical novel activates history and illuminates character as being shaped by inevitable historical processes. 
And the bad, I mean, someone can correct me here, but but I'm doing a crude summation, but the bad historical novel is something that is a kind of dead, inert history that has no relationship to the present where the history is just a kind of pageantry. It's being trotted out, but it doesn't illuminate anything about change. Like he used the example of Salambo. Like Carthage is something completely remote from us, and it's just filled with very specific, overly gilded details. When I was writing my book, I wanted the characters to be products of their time. That's how I knew to shape them. And also, that's what they seemed like to me. The people that I spoke to raised questions for me. Some of them were born in Cuba. So they felt like Cuba was their home, and they had a childhood there. But they had a childhood uh, that was tenuous morally because it was based on a kind of privilege that other people sacrificed for because Cubans were not even allowed into the American town. Um, You know, they didn't wear shoes. They lived in grass huts with no electricity or running water. And my mother remembers all of this. It's not a fiction. It's real. Um, But these people had to leave their home and they never went back. Um, and so you talk to these grown children from that time, they're, they have a right to have had a childhood. So how do you deal with that contradiction? So their memories and trying to recreate them and put them into play as characters calls for an ability to see history clearly and use it to shape what shapes their lives. I would never want to use history as a kind of backdrop where it could be like a timeless argument that's happening between a man and a woman, you know, in any place in any time, but then you see like the rebels running through or something like that. Um, it, the book for me was very much a way to try to understand that history and move people across the line of the time in which these things occurred and the country changed hands. But, I mean, it was a lot of fun, too. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's what's so nice about that Hemingway passage that you read from. You know, it's, I, fe- I felt what was charming about it, to say the least, is that uh, it wasn't really about Hemingway. You know, the, the worst, exactly, the bad historical novel version would have been him propping up the bar, telling everyone about this book about a fisherman he's going to write and it's going to be a huge right. parable and it's going to be 80 pages long or something. But instead, actually, I feel that the scene is it's more about the boy, KC, watching it and being struck and fascinated by what men talk about in a bar. And, the, and then he has that realisation at the end that... Uh, Actually, they're so drunk they could probably do this all again tomorrow night. So it's it's an insight into people and right. time. I mean, I guess I didn't really use a typical Hemingway. <laughs> I I like to do a kind of reversal sometimes, where hopefully the reader can recognize that uh, it's it's sort of a joke. At first, I wrote a more classical Hemingway. The only person who read this book before it was published was my husband, Jason, who's here, and I gave it to him, and he goes you might as well have him with a Marlin in one hand and a (laughs) bottle of whiskey in the other. And I thought, oh, I get it. And so I made him the guy in the bar who's trying to make other men dance with him. And then later on, they have a whole conversation about the lost era of the poet diplomat. And uh, it just seemed like there's more energy there for me as a writer if um, I can turn a stereotype inside out so the reader knows that there's a stereotype, but it's not being illustrated. The opposite is being illustrated. 
Just before we um, let you ask some questions, um, I re- I've read you writing once that you like, if I've got this right, you like being put into situations whose rules you don't necessarily understand. Does anyone not like that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I may have said that, yeah. I mean, I don't know if my life is really like that anymore, mm-hmm. but certainly my curiosity as a person, I think, was formed... I was formed as a person, I guess, very much by that curiosity, by wanting to understand things that I didn't understand. And I, as a writer, I find creative energy uh, in unknowingness more than I do in knowingness. But of course, knowingness is very much required. You want to write something and create a sense for the reader that they're in the hands of someone with authority. For me as a reader, uh, it's requisite. But I also find that it's a big part of the experience of being a person that you sometimes have no idea what other people's motivations are or what they're thinking. Or you're in a situation where you don't read the codes or understand the codes. And I guess now I like to sort of recreate those situations in fiction because I've been on the other side of them. And so I like to, maybe it's a source of humor for me or something. But when I was young, yeah, often I've had jobs where I had no idea what was going on or been in, you know, social situations, milieu, where I was the last person to understand what was happening. But that's how you learn things about people, right? But clearly, does it work in a, in a double way, that sort of that fascination with what the rules of a situation are? That, of course, that you can, in retrospect, um, reenact and narrate situations where you were the person who didn't understand that. But I, I sense that fiction is a very good place for you to keep still be asking that question of what are the rules of this place? So like you say, you know, your book inhabits a time and place that one doesn't exist anymore. And secondly, that you were never in. So I'm just wondering how much it's your way of asking what would the rules have been? What would it have felt like for a child then? What would it have felt like for a rebel then? What would it have felt like for Castro then? Yeah, maybe. But um, I had to master that world instead of go with a knowingness okay. about it. I mean, <laughs> You learned it and then wrote it. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Whereas like with my new novel, I was thinking more of that when I was talking because the narrator sort of uses her unknowingness to navigate through a series of realms that are a little bit beyond her to comprehend. But with this, I really needed to see the whole thing. Um, And that, in a way, was the challenge of the book. I saw too much. And ultimately, it was why I structured it the way I did with all these different narrators. I didn't want to have a single family because then it would have been a story of a family in revolution and then they have to leave and they lose everything but some other people are happier and deserve to be. I wanted a a bigger, more multifaceted view uh, on the revolution and do something fun with the rebels. Um, So I have the French guy who's training them and he thinks they're lazy and too creative. He wants to turn them into killing machines um, but, he you wants know, them to use execution as a rhetorical Cubans weapon. Cubans are like he? laid back, very intellectual people. They're a great combination of those two things. And they didn't fit in with this human killing machine plan for them. They just wanted to play chess. <laughs> so, yeah, so I sort of had to know everything to do it, everything about that world. Actually, I just want to ask quickly as well. There are, there are some sort of extraordinary flashes of horror in the book as well. But you're, you're very 
parsimonious with them, I think. There's one sentence in particular that really arrested me, but, and it's seen from the point of view of one of the young American children. And it runs, it was almost Christmas time, and there were humans hanging from the trees beyond the security fence. And that's it. There's no more graphic detail than that, but it says a lot about what this young girl's feeling is of that there are, there are bodies yeah. hanging in the tree. How much of these details were sort of sprung to you and how much did you glean well, them from people I mean, you spoke to? That's a very, like, me kind of sentence. But, <laughs> why, uh, why so? But I don't know. I think just think that, it, I mean, it's... I didn't find that sense in a history book. You know, it was almost Christmas time. Uh, there were humans hanging in the trees. But in fact, Batista's rural guard, they were called... You know, in the 18 months leading up to the, the moment of final change, January 1st, 1959, the Royal Guard became very vicious with people. And if they found people who were working to help the rebels, uh, Raul Castro's column was right above these two towns, these American towns, literally right above. And if the Royal Guard found people who were helping them or working with them, uh, they did hang them and they left them as a warning for other people. So the warning is real. It's been documented. Mm -hmm. Okay, who would like to ask a question? I was just wondering about your family's reaction to the book, given that it was inspired by your initial trip with your mother and your aunts. Yeah, they were very happy, you know. I mean, they sort of felt like it was their book, but I had to kind of explain that it was fiction, you know, as a novel. Uh, my mother understood that all along, but um, her older sister, my Aunt Dee, she was like, you know, the chandeliers that you describe um, actually looked quite different in our club. <laughs> and I had to say, you know, the, there was also, like, not a French Nazi in the hills. I mean, <laughs> and, no. And actually, particularly, the name of the uh, Cuban prostitute who acts as a spy for the rebels, her name is... In the book. Oh, yeah. Well, her name is Rachel Kay, uh, for those probably most of you haven't read it. And I could explain if you're curious why I named yeah. her that. Um, yeah, she's a young woman who is a kind of call girl to the is high-powered Cuban politicians and ends up in a kind of relation with Christiane de la Maziere, the French Nazi. And I came across a film... The, after the revolution, the Cubans had, probably some people know those, these movies, they had an amazing film renaissance there in the late 60s and early 70s that resulted in films like Soy Cuba, although it was, they had this great film renaissance. And um, I came across just in a book uh, of Cuban film, he's actually a British film historian named Michael Shannon. There was a film called The Strange Case of Rachel Kay. And it's such a cool name for a film. And I thought, Rachel Kay, like that's her last name, as if it's a Kafka character. And uh, so I looked her up, and it turned out this is a sort of historical icon of a particular period, not the 50s in Batista, but the 1930s, a different dictatorial regime under Machado. She was um, a call girl who was associated with men in power and then was found mysteriously murdered in a hotel room. And I decided to put her in the book because I had lifted another very real person, Christiane de la Maziere. So I thought they formed a kind of symmetry of real historical figures who were, they, they would undergo some kind of transformation as characters in this novel. And at the last minute, my editor called me and said, you know, why is she called Rachel Kay? I mean, are you doing this kind of meta thing? 
where she's an alter ego for you. And then I explained to her, and the Cubans, like, there's a book called Rachel's Song, and there's music about her, and they made this film. I've never seen the film. I didn't really want to see it. I just want to make my own version of her, because all of it is kind of apocrypha at this point. No one knows anything about that woman. But I said, you know, this is a real historical figure. And my editor said, well, then if you change her name, you're actually suppressing this history. So that's okay. Just leave it in. And so I did. And um, she is very crafty and discreet, um, holds a secret very well. And she and I have nothing in common. (laughs) (laughs) There's a great bit at the end of... um Tarantino's movie Inglorious Bastards where, where Hitler gets blown up in a, in a cinema in Paris and I was just thinking about your distinction between your real company and your fake company and how much responsibility do you have to your real company not to, as it were, kill Hitler? Um, I never saw Glorious Bastards. Um, Sorry to spoil it. With the real company not to kill Hitler... With the company, the United Fruit Company sort of deserves everything they have coming to them. So I think they're fair game. But for the purpose of my book, I felt pretty big responsibility um, to use history without manipulating or distorting it because the real history is quite compelling. And no one had written a novel like this telling the story about the role that the Americans played in that revolution and recreating what that life for them was like. Uh, And I had such direct access to people who could explain what it was like. There is no history book that you can find that will tell you about the traditions and social mores and the treatment of the workers and this whole world that really resulted in this revolution. Um, So I wanted to be careful and precise about it. There are places in the novel where I have my own version, maybe, of someone blowing Hitler up, but not quite that, because then you'd think, well, what world are we in? The Cubans triumph at the end. And maybe it was one of the freedoms uh, of structuring and writing the book that I knew how it would end. And I know that the reader knows how it will end. So there's no monkeying around with that. We know that the Americans are going to have to leave and that the companies are going to be nationalized uh, and that things are going to go differently in Cuba. So I had to find sources of deviation in other ways. But there is, um, as Robert mentioned, there's a kind of erotic scene between Fidel and the French Nazi, which isn't exactly blowing up Hitler. But the Cubans were very offended by that, unfortunately. And it may be the reason that Fidel Castro never read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Although supposedly somebody gave it to him, but they were all the Cubans were like, why did Raquel, why did you put that scene in your book? That is not Fidel. But I did it anyway. I wanted to ask, in fact, about this. um, There's a young American character who gets involved with the rebels in the book. And yet, interestingly, by the end of the book, after you leave it on the 1st of January, we see that actually he turns his back very severely on everything that he was involved in and in that radicalism. Yeah. And then I think we basically get a glimpse into why that might have been, is that actually he was involved in scooping up all the bodies that Raoul had uh, executed at one point. And I just I wondered if what was in your mind with the backstory of this character here, someone who's got this, uh, this youthful energy for change, but then suddenly 
shrinks at the, the brute, bloody reality of what actually it takes to he overthrow a government. Panty waste, you just couldn't deal with the violin. No, just kidding. <laughs> jo- completely joking. I, I sort of thought of that character. I mean, it's hard to reconstruct my motivations, but um, yeah, he is one of the sons of the head of the United Fruit Company in Cuba and runs away from his family and goes and helps the rebels. I got the. I wanted to do that because it's an important aspect of that story. And there were American boys in that town who my mother knew as kids, who were using their boats that their parents gave them for Christmas, etc., to help rebels ferry arms and supplies across this bay, which is very uh, geographically quite strategic. This little bay called Cayo Saitia. So it seemed like an important part of the story, and I made it be one of the sons of the head of the United Fruit Company, and I guess ultimately I thought maybe that would be more of an Oedipal act on his part and a rebuke of his father's values. But that does happen sometimes. I don't think it always happens by any means, but in the case of this one character, it did, that then later on in life uh, you know, decides to be a very wealthy guy who lives in Naples, Florida. I mean, I guess it's a little perverse, but these these things happen. You know, do you know people like this perhaps? I don't know. I mean, I I No, I, think I only know people who've stayed very true to their <laughs> ideals. No, but you know, I don't I mean, mean people you'd ra- invite for dinner, but people you could observe and Well, in you life see this in, in Italy. I mean, I was just in Rome uh because my flamethrowers is, came out there last week and um and so I did the whole round of very intense interviews there because flamethrowers is partly for those who haven't read it about the ultra left in Italy in the 1970s and it was a time when almost everyone really was involved with that movement unless you were on the right. Um, And then a lot of people got rounded up and thrown in jail and a lot of other people became bourgeois and ended up employed by uh, things like Rai, the TV and radio station. And everyone I talked to interviewed me. These are like people who are in the bourgeois structure of the press there had been involved in the autonomous movement in the 70s. And a friend of mine sent me a text while I was being interviewed. He listened to the radio show. And he said, by the way, how is your, uh, I shouldn't say this, but he said, how is your publisher dealing with the whole book thing? Because um, half the people who interviewed you so far were in the movement, but then later would have called the police on their friends. And probably Ponte Alla Grazia, which is my publisher, would call the police on them too. So there's just this way in which um, you get the sense in Italy that some people remain true to their ideals and many, many people did not. But I'm not calling, you know, accusing anyone of anything here. Just answering the question. Talking about Italy, where does your fascination from, for Italy come from? I don't know. I've always had it. Started when I was young, and I moved there when I was 18, um, to, you know, just to, as a student to study abroad, study art history and architectural history in Florence, and also ended up not going to class and hanging out with bikers. But um, but the, and then I started going back to Italy. You know, I studied the language in college and started going back to Italy with my husband, uh, who writes on Italian and French 20th century philosophy, and he knows a lot of Italian philosophers. And it was really the autonomy I'd never heard of until I was exposed to it through him. I knew people there in the art world, and I started asking people about the 70s, and it turned out every single person I asked about it had a story about that time. Um, And we spend a lot of time in Italy. Um, Two summers we've spent a lot of time in Venice. I have a friend who has this crazy empty house there in Canareggio. 
I don't know. We have a lot of Italian friends. There's something about Italy. It's just futurism always interested me, even when I was young. I can't account for it, really. But I like to read Italian fiction, watch Italian movies. I mean, I took an Antonioni class in college from this guy Seymour Chapman, who was really like the Antonioni scholar in English. And we watched every Antonioni movie. So, you know, these things, you just kind of, they build. And yeah, it's just an interest. I have two questions, if I may. Maybe I should ask the second one first, actually. So you've referred a number of times to films um, in the course of your talk this evening. I'm just wondering to what extent cinema informs your thinking about narrative and character development and storytelling generally. And the second uh, is perhaps a more expansive question. Um, To the extent that your books are historical fiction, or maybe you disavow that label, but... Um, I wonder to what extent your two books as a dyad are sort of an oblique way of telling 20th century American history um, and whether they are an attempt to sort of, you know, make 20th century American history more of the world or something. Wow, big questions. Well, I'll start with the movie question. I love watching movies and um, they, for me, are a source of inspiration. There's so many films I see that I think... If I take the ideas or certain details from the scene I'm watching and transport them into a novel, they will come out different because it isn't a movie anymore. It's something else entirely. So it's not a really clean appropriation. It's something else. I mean, every novel is made of materials. You know, some people just write novels that are sort of like a thinly veiled version of their former marriage or something like that and I don't do that I don't write about my personal life but I when I see a movie that I feel a strong kinship with and I think that something mysterious is happening even if it is essential to how it happens that it take place in the form of film I find that a fun challenge for me is to try to find some mechanism in the film that then can be put into writing and just to see what it does. So I take certain details from film. Narrative structure, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of the cut more than the ellipsis, the dot, dot, dot. So maybe there are moments in films that have informed that. I mean, I always wanted to write something using the Godard mechanism where um, every time someone is about to say something really important, like a car horn goes off or an ambulance streams by, I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, so film is just really like a a well that I go to. Uh, I like to think about films quite a lot. I mean, in a certain way, they're not that different than books. It's a different set of terms, but it's as easy or easier to borrow from a movie, I think, than it would be to borrow from another writer. And it seems more logical to me because it can produce something original, um, whereas borrowing from another writer is so much trickier. And films seem like the real world to me. They just seem like a world, you know, like the gleaming aisles of the produce market or something. It's just there for the taking. The other question that you asked about the 20th century... I didn't think specifically about America. Um, Certainly, Telex from Cuba, the Americans play a big role. 
Um, but I, w- I was pretty immersed in Cuban history when I was writing it and like thinking about the way that the Enlightenment came to the Caribbean through Haiti. And not that that really shows up in the book, but it's somewhere buried in the foundations or the conditions of possibility for me to write it. But clearly it is centers on the 1950s, which is the height of American influence in the world. And then the second book, as it just so happens, centers on the 1970s when American influence is ultimately going to be on the decline as a manufacturing base, obviously, that was all over and done with by about 1978. And now I'm writing a contemporary novel, which you could maybe think of as being about the fallout from the crisis of the neoliberalism of the 90s, but I don't structure things that way or think about them beforehand as, well, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. Um, It would be hard to write from that sort of proposition. It's not a motivator for me. It just so happens that I guess I'm interested in a certain set of things. I like to work on the bigger canvas. I'm interested in history. I mean, in a way as blighted as its influence was, the 20th century to a certain degree was a kind of American century. But then again, the flamethrowers is also really, for me, partly about um, Italy and something that really happened there and didn't touch the United States until more recently when people got interested in the movement of 77 as seeming more relevant to their lives than, say, May of 1968 in France. For me, there's a little parallel between the holding of the hand grenade for two seconds to the China girls in the flamethrowers. Because for me, both of them represent um, pure potential, which is something you kind of touched upon about this idea that the books are like that moment of possibility before something happens. And I know it's kind of, you know, I should have been at the other talk, but in terms of that idea of possibility, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the China girls represented or how you got to that, because it's obviously a very idiosyncratic piece of knowledge and it represents for me it represents something quite important sure I'm still thinking about how the grenade could be possibility I guess it's just the promise of who you're fantasizing about lobbing it at (laughs) well the China girl for those who haven't read it the narrator for the most part of flamethrowers works as a China girl she works at a film lab in downtown New York City and the film lab uses photographs of a woman's face holding a Kodak color bar so that they can calibrate um, the tones of the film stock so that skin will look natural. And that means Caucasian skin, actually, because um, all films really have been uh, calibrated towards white skin historically. Um, They are called China Girls. No one really knows why. Apparently, maybe one of them served tea to the men at the Kodak lab. Maybe one of them was Asian. No one seems to really know. There's like one person who's writing a book about China girls. And there are a couple of interesting filmmakers uh, who've made works that have incorporated them. One being Morgan Fisher. He made a film called Standard Gage. And then James Benning made a film called Grand Opera about China girls. And um, I guess I found out about them through the Morgan Fisher film and Typically, the women who posed as China girls for the technicians in the lab um, were secretaries in the film labs. So they're regular women, and they're anonymous. No one knows who they are. And there were some people who uh, 
restored a lot of these little pieces of film later. The China Girl goes on the film later. She's part of the film, you know, from the countdown. There's a color bar, and then there's a girl, and she flashes by very quickly. And if the film is loaded properly by a projectionist, you never see this girl. But there were only, I don't know how many, but maybe, you know, I see a lot of the same China girls coming up again and again on different films. Maybe there are like 15 or 20 who were in heavy circulation on the films that were distributed in the United States and Western Europe over the 60s and 70s. And so you get these totally anonymous and invisible but omnipresent faces um, on film reels. And I don't really know what that means, but it it means something to the novel. And why the girl is a China girl is, is was more practical in a way for me, that she moves to New York and she wants to be an artist. And at that time, in the 1970s, there were a lot of film labs that were being used by artists because before the digital era. So um, people were not developing their own film. They were taking it to labs. And I knew about some of these labs just in like the notes of artists like Jack Goldstein, where they talk about what labs they're going to to process their work. And I thought, well, this girl uh, will work in a lab because that way she might meet some people from the art world. And then I made the decision to make her a China girl. Uh, A friend of mine who was part of that kind of pictures generation art scene read the book and said, "Um, did you know that I worked at a film lab on the Bowery? And I said, no, that's so wonderful. But she didn't pose as a as a China girl. I didn't know actually uh, why I was doing it, but sometimes you have to make decisions when you're writing that will become clear later, which isn't to say that I know now, but I, that it had some hold on me, the idea of those girls. And I guess I've already explained it just that they were anonymous and the anonymous woman is really appealing to me for some reason. I mean, it's just interesting that you can see their picture and they don't look like models and models are not interesting because their faces are meant for visual consumption by the public as the kind of archetypal, any woman, you know, the woman in the toothpaste commercial, she's not interesting to me. I don't think about her as a person but the woman who's sort of imperfect looking, like slightly frumpy, just looks normal, isn't used to having her photo taken, doesn't understand photography and how to conceal herself from it through perfection is far more interesting. And the fact that there's no way to find out who she is uh, just redoubles that for me. I wasn't really cur- curious about this until I heard you talk so um, so passionately about film, but... Are, are your books in the process of being made into films? They are. And God help the people who who have to deal with you, really, I suppose. No, I'm just kidding. I've been in that in a really nice way because you're so knowledgeable and you must have some really clear ideas about what you would like to see. Well, you know, it's funny. The, I can't give the details, but the they both are. The Flamethrowers is in a more advanced stage, but the film rights to both have been optioned. Um, but I don't, uh, don't want to be involved in any way. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I, my genre is the novel. Um, I love to watch films, but I'm a fan of films, not a maker of films. And if I were to make a film, I mean, it's already been done, but I love the way Marguerite Duras makes movies. I just think it is so awesome because she doesn't submit to the terms of the feature film and try to do the feature film, which takes a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge and a lot of resources and a lot of people. 
she just um, got her really glamorous, cool-looking friends to kind of sit around her house and smoke cigarettes, and then someone you know plays a piano score, and then she reads this play that wasn't even meant to go with that film. And the effect is really neat. It's just that she makes her own form in the film form. I don't know anything about how to make feature films, and I don't think I'm qualified to direct somebody else who does know how to do that. Yeah, I'm just more concerned with writing another book. And I think if somebody, you know, if the film really gets made, Flamethrowers, the book is there uh, as a departure point for the person who's making the film. And it's just a s- inspirational material for her. Um, and I'm not looking for it to be like in a, you know, one-to-one ratio with the book as its filmic cousin or something. I don't know anything about film adaptation and I don't want to learn because life is short and I'm old and I want to write books. Seems like a good point to end. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure as it was last year. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Kushner and Robert Collins. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.